Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. I'm your host, Ani Lee. My interest in fiber goes back to childhood, when I'd pore over bedding catalogs and obsess over fiber content and thread count. My mother, bless her, taught me to knit at age 10, and I've fallen increasingly in love with all things fiber ever since. I started the Close Knit Podcast in 2016, and I've had the pleasure and privilege of speaking to over 50 incredible people since then. On this podcast, you'll hear from all kinds of folks who share a love of fibers, from full-time practicing artists to those whose main practice is mending their garments. I'm interested in hearing and sharing as many people's stories and experiences with fiber as I possibly can, because I believe each of these unique stories is powerful and teaches us more about how humans use fiber to make sense of the world around us. This podcast is supported by a very special community on Patreon. Pledging just $5 a month there helps me keep Close-Knit up and running by covering hosting and streaming costs and paying my wonderful editor. I cannot thank you all enough for your support, as it's what enables me to sustainably continue this work. So if you've ever enjoyed an episode, please consider pledging your support at patreon.com slash closeknit. That's www.patreon.com slash closeknit. Hey, it's Ani of Close Knit, and today I'm here with Ashlyn Camps, Trinidadian-born mechanical engineer turned knitwear designer hustling out of Brooklyn. Hey, Ashlyn. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. I was like thinking today about how, a, I think it was like a mutual acquaintance that we have, who's like, of course, name now I've forgotten, but she introduced me to your work a couple of years ago. She's a, a knitter in New York who was at the time kind of like early days starting to to design her own knitwear, like hand knitwear sort of sort of stuff. And she was like, okay, you got to check out my friend. Her work is amazing. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. And <laughs> I think like that's been that's been the piece that I've been so interested in talking to you about and we'll have to get into eventually, but your work is just so different and so interesting to me in a way that I've never seen in the knitwear world. So that was what like drew me in and I'm, yeah, really excited to talk I'm really to you stubborn. Everybody always says like, I can't tell you how many times a day when I speak to business people or friends that see me struggling to move my stuff forward, they're every single, at least once a week, someone tells me, stop reinventing the wheel. And I think it's just because I'm a contrarian and I'm just stubborn that's all I do. It's like, I'm like, I want to make knitwear that's sexy, or I want to put like, you know, I'm not approaching it from a traditional sense. And it's very labor intensive. And everyone's like, why are you making this so difficult for yourself? Just make, you know, like everyone's expecting like big oversized blankety beige, you know, simple (laughs) styles. And I'm over here going nuts, like doing the most. and um trying to make it a viable business at the same time and like yeah I guess I just like making things difficult for myself (laughs) (laughs) I would wager there's more to it than that because it's just it's (laughs) stunning and it's so interesting and I do I really want to talk about how you how that is like sort of came to be but a, a place I love to start with people just because it 
you know, it kind of can lead so many different directions is what your kind of earliest memory of fiber is. Like, do you have a memory as a kid or, or something like that of working with some form you of fiber? Like knitting or? Any, any kind of textile or knitting or anything like that. Um, I guess my grandmother taught me how to do cross stitching on like, she had this, I mean, she was a principal at her school. Yeah. So she was a very bossy lady and she <laughs> insisted that I know how to have really good cursive. Mm. And, um, and then also like, she had these little cross stitch, like embroidery kits, I guess. And yeah. I, she showed me how to do that. So that I was doing these ducks, cross stitching ducks, I guess might be my first experience with a needle and thread. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then in Trinidad, we had home economics. Mm. You know, it's a very sort of like old school sexist thing. Like the, only the girls learned how to do home economics in the all girl Catholic school. But I'm so grateful for that class because yeah. from day one, I knew how to hem, how to change a button, how to do like basic things. That, yeah. That's like life skills. Like I don't want everyone to know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. those, I guess, would be like my first introductions. Way back was like with my grandmother at the age of, I don't know, like eight or something. Yeah. And then, and then in school, in high school. Yeah. The home ec side of things is really interesting because I think, I think that like by the time that I was taking those sorts of classes, they had kind of set them into like, like they had wood shop and they had all these other things that you could elect to take, but it wasn't like right. divided by gender. So I never elected. Well, I went to all girls school. Right, right, right. So, right. But my brothers went to all boys schools and they didn't have home ec. That's, right. So I, I always so noticed that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because you're, you're absolutely right that it's this like totally sexist thing that has been put into place. But then it's also like such an important life skill that you have as a result of that weird sexist policy. <laughs> yeah. But maybe that's why I went into engineering because I just wanted to be defiant and make everything difficult for myself. Be yeah. the only woman in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So did you have any kind of like engagement with textiles or sewing or knitting or anything like that kind of throughout school or high school or college or anything like that oh the initial thing was like that home ec class when you know like years ago yeah and then not really at all until I was already an engineer I already graduated from Columbia and I was like working as an engineer doing you know sustainability energy modeling and all this stuff and crunching numbers all day basically and then I was working across the street from FIT my consulting firm was across the street and that's when I think I first started to like get that's the first time I ever sewed a garment mm. um, I took this like nights and weekends continuing education class at FIT it was called learn to sew like a pro and I just I needed some sort of creative outlet because I'd always had like I'd always done fine arts yeah. on the side. So like I, I had my engineering classes and then I'd always make my Fridays free when I was in, at Columbia. And then I would pack my Fridays with studio classes. Oh, cool. so like, you know, advanced sketching and like learn, I learned how to do oil painting and lithography, which was so cool because you're just like grinding on the stone and sketching on the stone. And it was just like kind of super old school, bizarre format of fine arts yeah. so I always had some sort of outlet fine art 
outlet and then I was just working full-time and all I was doing was numbers and I didn't have that balance so I started taking that class at FIT to learn to sew like a pro where I made a pair of boutique um, pajama pants (laughs) I don't know where those are I really have no idea I want to see those (laughs) they were pretty ugly (laughs) and from there I just I took like illustration classes fashion illustration which is very different from like nude you know drawing classes Um, because you kind of learn to distort the figure and make everyone look like way too skinny and tall but that's a whole other conversation and um so I just did a whole bunch of that stuff and I ended up leaving my job and going to FIT full-time wow so it really wasn't like a thing I was doing all the time as a kid I was just yeah I kind of just fell into it by accident and then had like a quarter life crisis and switched careers at age how old was I 20 23 24 I don't know somewhere around there yeah I am like so I have to just say that um so I studied environmental science my father's an engineer so I like have this real (laughs) nerd connection of like there's there's something about like numbers and data and science that I really gravitate towards. And I I think that people assume there's a lot of difference between that and knitwear or that and cre- creativity. Like there isn't creativity in mm-hmm. science or math. And I feel like there are more linkages than we realize. And that's something that has definitely like kind of piqued my interest about you. I was like, I remember reading your bio and seeing mm-hmm. seeing you say mechanical engineer turned knitwear designer, WTF. And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I thought that was hilarious <laughs> first. But I also was like, it's sort of not that WTF of a connection. Like it's sort of Yeah, it makes sense mentally to me. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I remember, you know, my my studio design project at Columbia when we were in a mechanical engineering program. Um, I was head machinist, always on machines, and we made a automatic ski waxing machine, little robot that like clasp onto the ski and like wax it and iron it in for you. And then fast forward five years later, and I'm in another basement with another bunch of machines doing my senior design project for knitwear specialization at FIT, yeah. where I'm using a CNC knitting machine. And five years ago, I was using a CNC milling machine. Right. And it's really not, it's like I'm learning G code specific to that machinery to get it instead of like spitting out like parts of a robot, I'm spitting out fabric to make clothing. So like just the, the outcome, the, the output is different, but the process is pretty similar. There's a lot of graphing and you know, prototype making and just figuring out optimization. You wouldn't really use that, you know, sort of verbiage with clothing, but it is optimization. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's like it's it's the same sort of like thought process to get to a different product. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you go? So you're okay. You're like a full time engineer, and on the weekends mm-hmm. you're taking this learn to sew class, uh-huh. and then you go you you sign up at FIT, and are you uh-huh. initially thinking like you're interested in garment making from a text like a sewing perspective? How does t- talk me through that? I took a one-year associates program at FIT thinking that this was going to be my gap year mm. that I never had. Yeah. I was like, oh, just, you know what? The economy had crashed in 2008 when I graduated from Columbia. Mm. So then I had like, I was just working my butt off, 
as an engineer, but not really making a ton of money, but super grateful to just have a job. Right. And I'm like, what is the point? Like everyone was just getting fired and like a third of my company was just let go. And I just felt like, you mm. know, the guillotine was coming from my neck. And I'm like, what is like, maybe I should just do what I want to do. So I did. I just like took a chance and I figured like, let me just try something. Yeah. If it's just, it's a one year deviation, worst case situation, I could just come right back. But I felt like I wasn't happy at the, I just didn't see myself like 30 years from then doing that kind of work. Yeah. I love the sustainability aspect of it. Cause like I was doing, like, I felt like it was really good work mm. because, you know, I was consulting projects and architects, how to like, you know, have high efficiency HVAC units and mm. like, you know, consult, tell them how much gas and electricity they would save. They put in this really amazing glazing and this automated lighting and like these, maybe you should use heat pumps and like all this stuff. And yeah, just like, so it was great work. And like, sometimes I'm like, oh man, that was like so much better than being in like, now I'm in fashion, which is like one of the most like wasteful, biggest contributors to, you know, the world ending. Um, but, <laughs> but, we'll have to circle back know. to that. Just, yeah, it, I don't know. I just I ended up just wanting to, I, I wasn't fully fulfilled and I felt like I needed more balance. Yeah. I was like just doing all numbers and I needed some creative outlet mm-hmm. for my analytical mind. Like it was just, I was too boxed in. Yeah. So um, that was kind of like what I was thinking was just trying out something totally different. And then I took another year and got the bachelor's. So I have mm-hmm. two bachelor's degrees. Like who does that? Um, <laughs> one bachelor of science and then a bachelor of fine arts. Yeah. Then, yeah, I just, I ended up falling into knitwear because it was super technical and everyone was a little bit scared of it because it had lots of numbers and calculations. And I used to like correct the teachers, which they probably fucking hated me that makes me so happy that like <laughs> I'm like that math is wrong you're going to confuse everyone it's not that difficult we're not doing like you know we're not doing differential equations here like come on <laughs> let's get this right says the engineer okay, who came into the room it, I didn't say it like that but <laughs> you know I definitely was like no that's that's wrong <laughs> I love that so much so yeah I just yes I end up in where as a specialization just because it was the most technical of the specializations yeah. and I was trying just to find something that would be like a, a dish a, another tool mm. to have to get me a job. Mm. So like, it's like where there was a lot of knitwear positions on the market when I was looking, I so I was like, Oh, so, you know, maybe I should go into this cause it seems like a good path or whatever. So. Right. So then, okay. So you're like, you're thinking about, you know, upskilling to, so that you can find your, find a job. How yeah. do you find yourself from there to like having your own, your own label and brand? Well, I basically got kicked out of the United States cause no one would give me a visa. Oh <laughs> shit. I did not know that at all. Fuck. Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So the, the starting my own brand thing was a, was out of necessity. Um, so right. I, after two degrees, nine years in New York, um, I had a very, I was very unceremoniously kicked out, oh, but I think God. it was a good thing for me because I was starting to become a little bit of a stranger in my own country. Mm. I never lived in Trinidad as an adult because mm. I left when I was 17 to, to go to Colombia. So yeah. I 
you know, I show back, show up at home at age 26. And I had like two, you know, in hindsight, it was two really great years. Mm. I mean, I was super depressed to like, I felt like I'd failed. It's like I failed and like New York kicked me out and la la la. But I had such a great, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the audacity to start my own thing if I didn't have like, you know, if I didn't have the option taken away from me. Right. Because there's not a huge fashion scene in Trinidad. Yes, there's a, there's a handful of amazing designers, but it's not like in New York City. Right. So I figured, well, I did the specialization. I bought a couple of machines. I had them shipped down. And I just started making stuff in my parents' house at age 26, feeling like a complete... <laughs> I was like, I'm a loser. I'm like such a millennial cliche. I'm just back in my parents' house at 26. I mean, you have a very different situation where we have arbitrary borders and bullshit rules that like kicked you out for no reason. So <laughs> there's well, that. Very valid reason, you know, like illegal immigrants, you got to protect your borders, la la la. Like, fair enough. Like, I'm not going to fight with that. Obviously, like, you guys wanted me back because I, I'm back. It's like, I looked at we it. We realized like the error is the error of our ways. Yeah. So like I look at it like, you know, yeah. like a like a scorned ex. I'm just like, well, you know, that, you know, like that guy that broke up with you and then he's like, Oh, I made such a big mistake. I want you back. That's my relationship with New York. Like I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'll come back, but I don't trust you. I know that you could <laughs> kick me out at any point. That's a very generous way to look at it, I think. Ah. Yeah, well, I won the green card lottery, so they can't get rid of me now. Oh, did you? Cool. I did. I did. That's cool. I wasn't. I wasn't sure if that was like still. I knew that that was a thing. Like, it's called a diversity visa, which is really funny because I live in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, and there's like more people from Trinidad and the Caribbean in this neighborhood than anything else. But so I'm like, wait, whatever. I'll take it. I'm not going to dispute it. I'll take it. Hell yeah. Yeah, that's great. Cool. So you're, yeah, your green card can be here. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That's fucking Mm -hmm. awesome. Cool. So you're like in your parents' house working on a, you got a machine like shipped there so that you could work work with Yeah. I bought two machines, Mm. um, a three gauge one and a seven gauge one. Mm. I started off with just a seven and then I decided like I needed to have more machines. (laughs) I wanted to get the three gauge. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, I have like very limited knitting machine experience. There's a very funny, I used to live in Australia and there's like a very funny, oh, cool. For those who cannot see, she just showed me. (laughs) Yeah. This is my apartment. It's like 350 square feet, but there's a nook that's just machinery. I love it. I love that (laughs) so much. Yeah, I actually, I have, the only experience I have is that there was this, this like group on Facebook called like buy, sell knitting machine chat. And it's a bunch of like mostly much older folks who are just really into knitting machines. And I went over to this lady's house and she like showed me how to use her knitting machine and I made her some cookies. It was all very sweet, but I was like, I do not understand. Like I didn't know. She was like a river and this, that, and the other. And I had no idea what she was talking about. Can you just give the lay people a little bit of term, like what that all means? I mean, it's a really, it can be a little bit intimidating at first glance. It's yeah. like all these needles and stuff, but it's just a mini, it's a miniaturized version of what you get in 
like an industrial machine Mm. um so you basically have like a bed of needles um like I think the seven gauge has about 200 and the uh, three gauge has about a hundred needles on it, I think. Um, And then basically you have this cam that has like, you know, that controls. So, so all the needles have little butts on them. And like, so you could control if it's going to be like tucking or missing based on the buttons that you push on the cam that controls it. And then you just slide that across. Right. So when you slide that across, it guides the yarn to loop through those needles. So when you make one motion left to right or right to left, that's one course of knits, one course of um, knitting. Right. And then when you move it back, so you're just, you're basically just going back and forth with your arms. And every time you move from one side to the next, you get like an entire row of of knitting which is great because which is why I've never really become really good at hand knitting because right. I'm just like well why right <laughs> right because I, I got machines so much faster yes I know I remember feeling that way when I f- took my first sort of passes on a knitting machine and I was like yeah. oh, wow why do we yeah. hand knit? I, I find that like there's something about having access to something that's so like simple and machineless and I think mm-hmm. it's probably the same for people who hand stitch and stuff. It's just like, oh, I can pick this up. I could be outside. I could be anywhere. Just like anywhere. Yeah, of exactly. The, the, the I'm not. I'm not discrediting. The no, no. Because <laughs> I'm gonna get like hate mail from saying that <laughs> after after this podcast is aired. But um, I definitely super value it <laughs> in terms of like the extreme chunky. That's like when right. I yeah, because I do do a little bit of like hand knitting with like my giant I have some giant scarves that I call like the Lenin Kravitz scarf on my on my website and it's like giant you know it's like super super thick so you can't do that on a machine like right and do it you need a very large machine right right Okay, yeah. So you've got a three, a three gauge and a seven gauge. Those are what are, that's what's in your, I'm, I'm putting words yeah. three and a seven in your house. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And this is like where you produce your garments. Yeah. Yeah. This is where all the magic happens is right here. Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. I mean, and so I think what's, yeah, what's really particularly cool about your work is like, you kind of brought it up a little bit at the beginning of like, could knitwear be sexy? And I feel like when I first saw your work, I was like, oh, I've never seen knitwear, either hand or machine done, that feels like this. Mm-hmm. Because you had these beautiful, like, ephemeral t-shirts, like the gate, the mm-hmm. silhouette of a t-shirt, but like you could see someone's nipples through it. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like, this just feels so <laughs> subversive and cool. Like, yeah, now I'm just fangirling, but I just, I mean, there are tons of different interesting silhouettes and things that you're doing, but I guess I'm really curious about kind of like your inspiration process and how you've kind of come to make the garments you've created. That's, that's, that all kind of was born out of necessity as well, mm. you know, so I'm kicked out of New York and I'm back in Trinidad, which is 95 degrees every day. Right. And when it's cool around Christmas time, maybe December and January, it might go down to like 75 at night and that's like cold. Right. So it's we're basically on the equator. It's like jungle 
humid and hot and rains every like it rains almost every day during rainy season and it's super super hot like it's 32 degrees 32 degrees celsius like 90 you know 90 degrees 90 something degrees fahrenheit every day so yeah um all that you know sort of ephemeral like sexy stuff was like because i'm not gonna try to sell a big chunky turtleneck and kill my people <laughs> in the process because they're just going to get heat stroke. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, let's forget the merinos and the, you know, and the cashmere. Yeah. Let's, let's get, let's source some linen, let's source some cotton, let's source some, you know, even like really highly twisted viscose, anything that has like a super dry finish is what I was drawn to, to mm. start developing. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I just kind of made stuff and it's like, it's really hot and it's like a hundred percent humidity. So like yeah, you wow. really have to just like, you got to kind of keep it light and sexy. <laughs> Otherwise it just, so it just, it, because I wasn't trying to do that. And also some of the slinkier dresses, like I had in my mind, this was a lot of trial and error at the beginning was, it was going to be like this, sort of like sack dress that was just going to lay off of the body and just be like a tent. But it just, I was learning that knits tend to cling. And so Mm -hmm. like, it ended up being like this super sexy dress with like, you know, I was like, oh man, that was not the intention. And then I was like, well, I guess I should just go with it. Yeah. So that's kind of like where I guess, I mean, I'm Trinidadian, like, it, this shit is in my blood, like, it's just, you know, people back home, oh my god, the women are so sexy, like, you forget, you come up here to, you know, the States, and, like, it's, like, a different culture, we're yeah. just, like, so, like, sex is in your face, yeah. just, like, like, look at my tits, look at my ass, it's just, and it's so, like, nonchalant, Yeah, you know, like, it, it's just sexy people. So like, I don't think it's sexy, but then, right. you know, like for, um, I don't know, maybe I guess like the Puritan history of Americans is like, you know. That uh, literally might be a big part of it, to be honest. Yeah. And they're like, you know, you yeah. guys like, oh, your stuff is so sexy. And I'm just like, oh, I guess. Yeah. I know like the average Indian woman, woman every year will wear pasties and a thong and go out in the street for carnival and not think yeah. anything of it. So yeah, we're just very in tune with just like unapologetically being half naked and it's like, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that just kind of subconsciously seeps into my, into my work. But in Trinidad, people think I'm pretty conservative, which is funny. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, so you have, I mean, you have both of these audiences now, too. Oh, yeah. Trinidadian, and you've got yeah. New Yorkers. I mean, New Yorkers are probably well, New York, pretty, they're you know. They're edgy. They're right, not, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I can see that. Yeah. That's a, it's a really interesting observation, too, around the Puritanism. I, I would, I feel like <laughs> I can't speak to it, like, articulately, but I do actually think that that's probably a big part of it. And honestly, like it saddens me that that's like a part of American or like white American culture to be like ashamed of bodies or, or feel like yeah. we have to, we're unsafe or it's, we can't like sexualize ourselves in a way right. that feels safe. Right. 
and it's like it's only allowed until you're like 25 and then you're considered like an old maid or something whereas right. like I go back home to like these fets and you know everyone parties together you know you'd have like my parents friends I might bump into and so and so is wearing like something with all her cleavage out at age 63 and like that's, that's like no so one's cool. even gonna bat an eye about that they're just like people are just sexy man yeah. <laughs> it's just that's fucking cool that's really cool I like that a lot yeah. I want that but, we're, but like we're like pretty religious too so I don't know how we kind of like work that out in our heads but whatever yeah, I like it. I feel like the less shame there is, the better, probably. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. That's just something that kind of... Oh, it's weird. Yeah. It's just different cultures. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm curious, the timeline, too. You, you were in Trinidad for two years when you went back yeah. as an adult? Yeah, 2013 to 2015. Hmm. So it's been five years since I moved back to New York. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what was it like for those five years of like, you know, did you have your business set up at that point? What was that all like? Um, so I came back and I had I had made like a bunch of stuff. Like I've mm. made like four mini collections, little capsule collections in the two years that I was in Trinidad. So I showed up and I was like working on trying to get my website up. And, and then I visited a friend of mine from FIT, invited a bunch of us out. He had a family home out in Long Island and we were in Mm -hmm. Sag Harbor and we went to this like, you know, cute boutique and I had already taken the Jitney home, but my friends were there and they're like, oh, my friend Desi actually was like, oh my God, we found the perfect store for your stuff. Mm -hmm. And I get this call from this guy Get, he has a super deep voice like Barry but he's like he's like listen honey you need to get back on the jitney when you get back to New York and take your ass right back and come back out to Sag Harbor because we need to sell your shit and I was like <laughs> okay <laughs> so that's how I got into my first store um, which no longer exists unfortunately oh. but that's when I first started selling stuff and I basically was just like I let them have the pieces and people would come in and I would like make them a fresh one. Cause that was kind of like mm. my preview. You could try it on and like, I would make minor adjustments like the sizing or if they wanted to oh, tweak wow. slight things, I would do it. So I had like a, three summers of insane amount of work. I did really good business out there. Then it closed and I, I just, I, I don't know, like honestly, I've just been, I make, I just make a lot of stuff. Yeah. I just had this urge. I'm like, okay, well, maybe the reason I'm not getting as many sales as I want is because like I need to make things better. Maybe it's the products. I'm just going to keep pushing myself and making it better and making Mm. it better. But I need, honestly, like I'm learning to be more of a business head and I'm getting, I've been getting some amazing mentors um, kind of like guiding me. And one of them last week was like, you need to stop making stuff. You have done amazing work and you don't need to reinvent the wheel there. She said it. She said it again last week too. Everyone's always telling me that shit. I'm just like, well, you might as well just kill me if you're going to tell me to stop inventing shit. Right. I'm a creator. Um, But she was like, don't reinvent the wheel. You have like this archive of amazing work tweak things here and there you need to focus on your business you need to hand off your work to factories so that you're not physically 
making everything. And I'm like, duh, of course, but knitwear stuff is just so expensive to develop. So I've been mm. slowly transitioning to handing off things to be mm. made um, elsewhere. I have yeah. an Italian factory that is amazing and they're making a handful of my styles and i have another style being made in brooklyn and another one i'm hoping to make in queens and some eventually i would like it to be right now it's like 80 20 80 me making and 20 percent outsource and i'm trying to like flip that so then i can you know I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm fucking tired, man. Like, yeah, that makes I, a lot of sense. The amount of shit I have made is like insane. I think about it, I'm just like, this is insane. I have done the work of maybe like 12 people in the right. last five years. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's just so, it's like super interesting because I think people get into these things because they're interested in making it themselves and they're creative and they're, they want to use their bodies and their hands and they want to, you know, part of how you were... Um, exploring your process was like by making the garment, seeing how it fit and then tweaking from there and going, you know what I mean? So it makes a lot of sense to me that people end up in this position where they're like, I am big enough that I have to like do something to like not all make it myself. But, Mm -hmm. But finding the ways, it seems to me that finding the ways to be able to like delegate for lack of a better word. Yeah, um, it's definite delegation. Yeah, but even just like the where those where that machinery exists and even in the, in the United States like where you can get that kind of like access to that sort of thing. I just have no I have no concept of that, you know. I mean, I already told you that I had a very tumultuous relationship with New York being mm. an abusive ex-boyfriend <laughs> that I keep coming back to. So when that when New York was jump kicking me in the face for like the 50th time, I decided because I was trying to get factories to like make shit for me or like figure out how to get it done. And, you know, like America is where is 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 commerce. If you yeah. don't have a robust business, that's the bottom line. Right. The bottom line is you need to have a viable business. You need to make a lot of money. This is, you know, this is where capitalism was born. So yeah. when you're like a little maker and you're trying to like make something beautiful, but not selling hundreds of them, they're just like, yeah, 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 whatever next. And so that was the general attitude that I received in the United States. Like I would go to all the, try to sign up for all these like business hubs and this and that. And everybody, nobody really truly wants to help you. They basically want to help accelerate you once you've already established a business so that they could say that they were part of, you know, the rise, but they don't actually want to do the work. Right. So Mm. I, I think, what was that? It was 2007. I believe. Yeah. 2017, I left New York willingly this time. And I just went to Italy. I sourced my yarn in Italy. Yeah. Um, at, at this little at this thing called PT Filati. I, you know, I heard about it through someone in the industry and then I just like bought a ticket to Florence the first time. And actually, no, they sponsored me to go because I heard from someone that they try to sponsor um American-based designers to get them to use Italian yarns. Huh. They put me in this like really nice hotel, and I was just like, "Yes, oh my god, I'm like living life." Yeah, and, and they paid for my ticket, and I went to Florence. So wow. this was like years ago, and um, so when you know, I was my love affair with New York was on the rocks. I decided to 
you know, I need to go somewhere where it's money is not the bottom line, but beauty and creativity is the bottom line. And where is that? Fucking Italy. (laughs) (laughs) They don't do good business, but they make beautiful shit. So I went, you know, where into my tribe. It's odd. Like I find Italy to be very, very similar in energy and attitude to Trinidad. Mm. And it's just like all about food. Mm. It's all about family and just like taking it easy and like having a good time. But with the added flair of just the obsession with beauty and art and creativity. Mm. Mm-hmm. So when I when I go to Italy, it's like, oh my god, they're so they're so fucking nice to me. They really are. I, and I was like scared to go because like I'm black and I heard horror stories about racism and shit. But like my personal experience, maybe because I'm light skinned, not gonna like deny that. Mm. But maybe maybe yeah, I've been treated super super well mm. in, in Italy, and um, I got connected to this factory there, and I just like spent the entire not the entire year, but like a good, a good chunk of the year in, in Emilia Romagna. And I didn't speak a word of Italian at the time. I got, someone introduced me to somebody at this party. It was like a so long convoluted story. And then like, I met like the owner of my favorite yarn mill. He's like, I love your shit. I'm going to introduce you to factories. And then he introduced me to like a bunch of factories. And then I picked one with his help. And he's like the dawn of knitting, you know? And he's like, you must, you must work with her. And then they're like, okay, Don, you know, Coglione, of course, like you'll work with her. So then, <laughs> like, this is legit how my, yeah. So um, I end up in this like little town in Italy, which for three generations, all they do is knitwear. Mm. And then like, I would do patterns for them and they would like let the smacchinatore, who is like the, programmer person with the machine mm. make samples for me in exchange yeah so then I I taught myself enough Italian to get by there wow and just this is everyone's always saying stop reinventing the wheel why you do everything the hard way but you know what like I needed to just do this because like my heart was saying go where you were wanted mm. and oh my God, like they're like family now. And so like, that's Mm. how I make some of the stuff that's like super fine gauge. I have them make it for me. Mm. And we have that strong relationship because like I've spent so much time there. I literally spent like, I don't know, half of the year in 2017, back and forth. Every time I would come back to New York, I rented out my place here and, and I just like would spend six weeks in Italy, like working on shit. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you know, like if if New York is not giving you opportunities, it's not the be all and end all, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just saw so much value in building those relationships there so that I could hopefully grow my brand in a lay the foundation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know, when things do start to pick up, I could always be like, Hey Gianluca. I need, and he's like, of course. Right. Yeah. As opposed to like getting to that point where everybody wants your shit and then you're like, I don't know how to produce. I spent a lot of time just like there. I guess it sounds kind of crazy. Is that like, is that like a thing that, is that 
kind of weird thing to do. Just I don't, like get up no. and go live in another country. You don't speak the language and work in a factory. I think it's brave. <laughs> I think that it's brave. And, uh, and, and a lot of people are not brave enough to do things like that. So they tend to, to brand those sorts of things as quote crazy, <laughs> but I actually think they're just, just a level of bravery. And it, I think that that's actually not a super uncommon story for folks who are trying to produce knitwear at scale. Mm-hmm. I'm saying at, you know, with yeah. air quotes, cause whatever scale you want, something that's beyond yeah. what your own body can produce, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I feel like that makes a lot of sense. And it is, it is really, I think that that's really a smart call to kind of have this base level relationship that's ready to go. And it's so much better than, it's so much better than the American manufacturers and they cost like a quarter of the amount. Right, right. They've been doing it for like three generations. That's, I think, an important part of this. <laughs> that's a really important part. I think that, that like sometimes we gloss over is the history of the places that are, that have, have like really long histories of making these garments and making you know, in, in India and in, you know, all of these different places that kind of specialize in like really incredible techniques that go back just generations upon generations that we just do not have in the States at all. So while there's definitely like value in local manufacturing and trying to keep industries alive on continent and like thinking through that from an emissions perspective and stuff like yes but from like an art artisan from a like cultural perspective like there's so many it's really much more nuanced I think well just to like to your point of like you know maybe carbon footprint right oddly enough all the mills I was sourcing the yarn from were in Italy Mm. so like it actually makes it a lot right you know it's all within you know a, a really small distance like right. the mills are there in Emilia Romagna and so like I I mean the amount of money I would spend to have that stuff FedExed here would sometimes be almost it would be like 50% of the cost of the yarn I would be spending right. again in shipping whereas like over there they have their relationship with all the mills because they like personally know everybody it's like right there the warehouses are right there it's mm. like the hub and so you get, you need like five kilos of this kind of merino. Like you get, you could even get it the same day. Like a wow. dude will just show up with it. It's I that like, efficient, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because it's all, yeah. it's all this tightly knit little area. And yeah. so I, I found it a really, really efficient way to create pieces. Like, you know, I had like, people that linkers like amazing like Mm. there's probably like two people in new york city that are professional linkers right honestly like it's it's such a dying art and nobody really knows how to do it well but like i had those girls like showing me how to do this stuff on 14 gauge i don't know how i didn't go blind and so like if and they respected me for it too because like i wasn't coming in there all high and mighty like i'm this designer and la 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 I was like on the machines, like doing the stuff, like running Mm. up and down the stairs, like speaking in broken Italian, Mm -hmm. which they loved. You know, they're like, why you don't speak Italian yet? I'm just like, dude, you won't speak any English. I have (laughs) almost learned your language. Like, give me a break. (laughs) I mean, no, I'm not fluent in Italian. I can only speak like knit factory Italian. Right. right. But um, yeah. 
but yeah it it was just like a really great experience because these are people that really know how to make give you little tips it makes you even better designer because like they they know how to execute your vision even better than you can mm. and so then when you're they're, they're showing you how to do it like that's kind of invaluable so yeah that's really cool i so i am curious to know kind of what this year has sort of looked like for for your brand and I remember seeing that you, yeah, McMullen started stalking you and I was like, oh yes, cool. Like a, a great, <laughs> like a great store stalking someone that I really admire. Like I got all excited about that. I'm just, I'm curious what this year has felt like and what you're maybe like looking forward to. It, it's crazy. Cause like, this is, this has been the best year for me business wise mm. and the world is on fire. Right. Literally. Right. I feel kind of conflicted. Yeah. I'm like, I need to, I've been killing myself for seven years yeah. and I finally am starting to get little breaks and starting to feel like, okay, maybe this is going to be worth it. And then it's like coronavirus, Black Lives Matter, you know, California's on fire. Yeah. Like, you know, it's blowing up. Like every, every, it's just like, I kind of just stopped watching the news because I felt like it was it was detracting from the joy that I fucking deserve to celebrate yeah. a little bit you yeah. know mm-hmm. um which is like totally selfish and insolent but I needed to do it for my own state of mind yeah I started off this year I actually kind of gave up my business for a hot second I just put it on hold last mm. year I decided like I didn't want to I just wasn't making enough from my sales to sustain myself. So mm. I was applying for jobs and doing freelance stuff. And I got this amazing gig um, from January to about June, which was like, you know, I could actually have savings. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, this is what people like have been, this is what it feels like. <laughs> people have been doing this for like, since they were adults, you know? Yeah, I'm here drinking, you know, coconut water from Trader Joe's that costs like a whole four dollars, and I'm feeling like I am balling. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> yes. I wouldn't allow myself these like luxuries. Yeah. Before. Yeah, a hundred percent. So yeah, so that happened. I got an amazing. I was doing some great consulting work. Uh, great, you know, I did some um, collaborative stuff with a. a you know, design sweater for Post Imperial, which is another brand I really admire. Mm. Some, you know, some fun things. And then I lost the consulting gig, which was like mm. nice cash at the time. Right. And um, it was the same. It was the same week that George Floyd was murdered. Oh. And I was just like, oh wow, like is this time for me to break up in New York again? Because mm. <laughs> like I just. I, I grew up in Trinidad, which is like a black and brown place, which has racism, but like United States, you guys have racism on another fucking level. And I was not sure if I was prepared to sit here and be part, have to deal with this level of hatred and intolerance and injustice. Yeah. You know, you know that people that look like me face in this country. Um, so I just, you know, it was like definitely a lot of dark moments. Like, 
And then the weirdest thing happens, like white guilt is real. And all of a sudden, everybody want to help black designers. There's like this forum and that forum and everybody want to put put us on lists and all kinds of shit and do these like interviews. And at first I was just like, fuck you guys. You're just yeah, trying to like save your own ass. Yeah. But then I was like, I was like, bitch, why people get opportunities like this all the time? Take it. Take 100%. it. 100%. I've been taking it. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> I've been taking it. So I went high of having a steady income to low of not having that and Black Lives Matter to, you know, white guilt. We're going to help, you know, the, the whole like black people in fashion and fashion is like one of the most racist institutions that exists. And so like everyone mm-hmm. holding them accountable. I was like, oh my God, I might be able, maybe I should try to get a creative designer position or somewhere like, you know, I could be the next Virgil. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, one step at a time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that definitely has kind of I'm not gonna lie helped to I think people just started to feel like they needed to stop just looking within the existing circles of creatives that have always gotten you know the accolades and like the attention and starting to look outside and it's not like my shit's not up to par like my stuff is good and it's just yeah I've been doubting myself for years yeah like you know Maybe it's not good enough, which is why I'm not getting, you know, the spotlight. But I just didn't have the, it's just me. I don't have a marketing team. Right. You know, it's that mixed in with the fact that I'm not super well connected and la la la. Right. But it's been taking me a little bit long. It's been a very organic growth. I mean, like I don't have a gazillion followers on Instagram, you know, it's like, it's, it is what it is like, but. I'm proud of every little mini step that I've made. Yeah. So that's, you know, that round, that's like, you know, end of summer is where I am, is where a lot of amazing, really connected people that I would never have dreamed of like two, three years ago are all of a sudden like knocking on my door. Hell yeah. Like editors and like stylists and like, we'll see what happens. I mean, I feel kind of optimistic, but I don't want to say like, I don't want to jinx it. Yeah. So things are starting to get a little bit more buzzworthy, but at the same time, the industry is kind of crumbling and imploding on itself. Yeah. So I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like giant companies that you would have thought were bulletproof mm-hmm. or gone yeah there's no barneys i remember when i came here in 2015 came back and i was like i had this list i was like where do i want to have my stuff sell barneys and opening ceremony neither of them exist as of last year yeah so you know it, it makes you take a moment to just kind of reassess like what is happening you know should i be trying to get a ton of wholesale accounts maybe right. not because right kind of horror stories that you're hearing about cancellations and you've already paid out of pocket and that will just bankrupt you in one season right I don't really know exactly how to move forward but I've gotten some amazing mentors have popped up within the last month and hopefully they can guide me to figure out what the next steps are going to be I've been 
saying this as a, you know, as an analogy recently, it's like this, the fashion industry was like this big luxury yacht, you know, and I was just there in the water, treading water and just like trying to stay alive and swim. And, and then, you know, the yacht sank and everyone's like, it's like the fucking Titanic or something. Or, you know, <laughs> not it's enough just like life vests. Yeah. It's not, not enough life vests and people are <laughs> dying out there. And it's like, Oof. people, like, it's like, it's not something yeah. to laugh at. I mean, it's terrible, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, like, people, there's jobs that will never exist again and businesses that will never exist again and all, all this stuff. Like if you read business of fashion, it's like terrifying, right? right? And then I'm like, holy shit, I'm better off than these people because I really know how to swim. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, um, totally. And I thought all I wanted to do was to be on that fancy yacht, you know? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, yeah. Maybe it'll, it'll, all, it'll all crumble down and maybe there'll be some space for some actual talent. <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. I mean, it's it's a really interesting, I think the thing that's kind of helped keep me lightly buoyed <laughs> this year <laughs> has been a little bit of like, there feels like there's maybe a little more space now to like imagine new futures. And yeah. we're not going to get to those new futures today or this year, but like there's space to imagine them because suddenly people have either out of necessity or people have like a little more time and space in their days because they're not in the, you know, whatever hustle they needed to be in before. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it feels like I like, I really enjoy having these conversations is it feels like each of us is kind of in our, in our own either small or big way, starting to like imagine new futures for ourselves and our communities and the, you know, our careers and things. And it's just like, it's, it's an exciting time. Cause I gave up, I legit gave up last year and I applied to a gazillion jobs. You know, I was like, I just need to be a consultant or something because there's Mm. no way that I could make this work. And now this year, oddly enough, even despite all the, everything kind of falling apart, I'm like, well, maybe there is a space moving forward because it can't continue the way it did. Yeah. I mean, dare I hope? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know. I, know. I feel like to hope is a pretty radical act. And I think it's, I think it's so important to hope, you know, to have hope, be yeah. hopeful about things. But yeah. yeah, I mean, we'll see. It's been a, it's been a real emotional year. Yeah. Ups and downs and ups and downs. And, yeah. and oddly enough, I'm, I'm very well equipped to, this has been my fifth year of working isolated and remotely. I work mm. from home. I've been working from home in this little space making stuff for five years wow I'm in yeah desperate need of more socialization um yeah like day to day and that's why I was so excited about teaching at FIT oh yeah cool and then it's remote so I still don't right. get to talk to anybody in real <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I was like you know Oh, I'm going to be able to go back to my alma mater and like, you know, have like my, my professor crew, we're going to yeah. have beers after class and I'm, it's going to be a community. Nope. Still in my fucking apartment. <laughs> just 
doing with more responsibility and less yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, it's a little cruel. It feels a little cruel. Yeah. 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 We're slowly making our way out of it, I hope. Yeah. In my fingers. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we could leave it off there and it would be it would be perfect. Where can we find your work? Yeah. Well, I have my website. Yeah. So it's ashlingcamps.com. And as you mentioned, I am now being carried by McMullen in, um, in Oakland, yeah, California. Cool. And she just um, placed a reorder. So I guess the stuff is selling. And so awesome. I'm making more stuff, which is what I was showing you. I have like a sleeve on my ironing board right now. Cool. That's <laughs> super exciting. Amazing. Yeah, no, she's lovely. And it's been, I'm so excited. This is like, you know, I'm, to be back in a physical store. And I couldn't have asked for some, you know, somebody who's like, yeah. I met her at Pierre Moss in the showroom. Mm, cool. Yeah. And she, she was, this was like two seasons ago. And she was like, oh, I need to, um, I would love to come by your studio. I'm like, it's just my apartment. It's like, and she's like, no, that's totally fine. I'm like, okay. But then she had like a gazillion appointments and then the window was lost. Mm. And then she just randomly hit me up. Um, awesome on Instagram and that's where you make friends it really is I it's so funny because I I keep being like oh this stupid app and then but then I can't delete it because it's where I find the best connections basically it's like where I find all the people that yeah, I girl, you're to. like you're like popular you're like way more popular than me on this thing I don't know about that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what followers even mean to be honest but, but it is but it has been such a great tool to like find people and get to connect and it's been you know it's been such a joy to be able to over the last couple of years, I remember because I remember like mm -hmm. seeing you back in Trinidad and thinking like, oh, huh, I wonder if she's like there now or permanently there. Like I remember having that thought. So it's interesting to hear yeah. you speak about it. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my all my family lives there, so mm. I go back for holidays, and usually I go back like at some other point during the year. But the borders is right. so close, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh man, I um, hope that changes soon. I hope so too. A lot of us are out here stranded and really wanting to go home. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. Well, it was really great talking with you. <laughs> Likewise. It's been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. The Close Knit Podcast is hosted by me, Ani Lee. A huge thank you to Andrew Bruce for writing podcast theme music that makes me genuinely smile every time I hear it. And giant thanks to my amazing producer, Amelia Harubi. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash closeknit.